0: Today on Onward to Victory, we conduct a centennial celebration of the Gipper himself, George Gipp. From his extraordinary 1920 season to his untimely passing mere weeks after its conclusion, few have both electrified and mystified in equal measure like Gipp. Let's investigate, shall we? That's why you're here, isn't it? Mold those mouthpieces and buckle up your chin straps, Irish fans. This is onward to victory. fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Painter. Welcome to episode 36, a very special one indeed, across the annals of show history. Well, we're going to be talking about George Gipp today, make no bones about it, so hopefully that's exactly what you signed up for. From the day this episode is being recorded, it is exactly 100 years ago today that Gipp passed away back in 1920. This was, of course, just mere weeks after the conclusion of the football season, and just a few days after Gip himself was named to the Walter Camp First Team All-American squad. In doing so, he became the first Notre Dame player in their history to be named to Walter Camp's First Team. A few episodes ago, we talked about Lewis Red Salmon. Yes, that pigskin magician, if you will, who's quickly become something of a show favorite. He was the first Notre Dameer to make an appearance on Camp's prestigious list back in 1903, albeit it was on the third team. Now, when Salmon made the Camp All-American list, it was actually kind of overrun by Ivy Leaguers at that time, not because there was any favoritism per se, but really it's because the Ivy League was playing some of the best football in the country. So, not to... Diminished from Salmon or Gip, but Gip was the first, first team, Walter Camp All-American. So, if you are a consistent listener of this show, you may have a good sense that I am something of a George Gip fan. I mean, who isn't, right? But I could spend several episodes talking about the aspects of Gip that are most interesting, and we will touch on each of them today. And that is, of course, Gip the player, the person, and the legend. All three make him, in my estimation and in my humble opinion, the most interesting player in Notre Dame history. Captivating, really. But way back in episode four, back when the show was a mere infant, released in late July 2019, we touched on Gip quite a bit, an episode I called The Charming Rogue, about Gip. And I've also done a segment in the past called The George Gip Minute, where I tell a roughly 60-second story about Gipps. So I really look forward to expounding on those today. Now, if you're on the Facebook page, I've been producing a pictographic series called In the Footsteps of the Gipper, where I released content on days to commemorate Gipps' final couple months of life. So jump over to the Facebook page and check it out. I'm really proud of it for a number of reasons. First, I am relying heavily On primary sources so mostly clipping things out of an old newspaper out of old newspapers I should say and I mean digitally of course I'm not taking actual pairs of scissors to 1920 newspapers but I'm using those to help curate the story so in a sense it feels incredibly authentic really does truly ground Gip which is something I think he desperately needs and we'll talk about that here in a second but in addition it would appear strongly that none of the for lack of a better phrase more major media outlets seem to be covering Gip with much breadth or depth during the centennial of his 1920 season. Now I say that, and my pal Jeff Harrell actually did just put out a nice write-up on uh, about Gip on his website, so go check that out. But really, it's mostly just been us here, so I guess yay for us! Um, But so please, go to the Facebook page and check it out already, uh, The In the Footsteps of the Gipper. I will be putting all of that content into one album. That way anyone can just seamlessly read it chronologically from beginning to end. So before we jump into this here thing, I have to shower the consensus all Americans with some praise. These are the individuals, both past and present, who have kept the show on the air, ad-free, and growing thanks to their monetary. Contributions. So, first up is my pal and perhaps the most ardent supporter of the show, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey. He has shown his support each month for the past several, and man, I can't thank you enough. Second is my East Central Indiana neighbor, Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana. As he knows, he's a kindred spirit of mine in a number of ways and possibly the biggest Notre Dame fan I know thank you, Brad. And the third is actually a sibling of mine, Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's raising a future loyal daughter at home who is just a little over three months old now. Thank you, Weston. And as uh, Rudy Rudiger said in the movie... I'm Notre Dame, golden blue, through and through. That's what I think of when I think of these guys. So thank you all. And if you'd like to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans, a $15 donation will sponsor episodes and net you some cool show swag, which I will send directly to your home. Visit paypal.me slash onwardtovictory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash Podcast. If you'd like to set aside some funds for your favorite Notre Dame program monthly, all proceeds are greatly and graciously appreciated. Okay, so back to Gip. Honestly, I don't think many football historians, pundits, and fans alike are 100% sure what to do with him today in 2020. I think some may believe the hype and you know the name recognition of Gip or the Gipper far outpaces his actual play. Others may consider him almost like a tall tale in the same vein as a Pecos Bill Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed. Just as a quick aside, Johnny Appleseed was a real person. He is buried in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If you're ever in the area, go check it out. But anyways, others may struggle to fully contextualize the era in which he played in from 1917 to 1920. Cross-comparing different eras in sports can be very tricky. Also, his untimely death in the same vein as rock stars Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, or athletes such as Thurman Munson or Ernie Davis or Ricky Bell. He plays a big factor into his allure as well. As do the various Gip Ghost stories that circulate around Notre Dame, college football, and the paranormal circles. Just as a sprinkling and another layer here, the veracity of the story of Gip on his deathbed told by his coach, Knute Rockne, several years later, also kind of murkies the waters a little bit. If you don't know which one that is, well, no fear. We will talk about it. So who was Gip? What was Gip? Let's talk about it. But a tangible example of this idea that folks really don't know what to do with him I'm going to use two lists, albeit they did use different methodologies, but they are from the same outlet, ESPN. In 2007, on an ESPN list, Gip was ranked as the 22nd best football player in college football history, 22nd. In January of this year, 2020, to celebrate the 150th year of college football, ESPN did a similar poll to celebrate the top 150 players in college football history. Now, Gip was one of the nine players from Notre Dame to appear on the list. But he was listed as the 90th best football player in college football history, behind five fellow Golden Domers and Paul Horning, number 27, Johnny Lujak, number 37, Tim Brown, number 53, Alan Page, number 59, and Leon Hart at number 88 before Gip slots in at number 90. And for some inquiring minds, which I do know we have plenty of on this show, the other three uh, Irish players listed were Rocket Ismail, Johnny Latner, and Angelo Bertelli. So anyways, just four years ago, uh, uhnd.com, so a site that many of us frequent uh, weekly even, ranked the top 25 players in Notre Dame history. In this list, Gip was a resounding number one. So it would seem strongly that with the passing of time, Gipp seems to be treated more and more like an artifact and less like the dynamic player and personality he was. When I was talking to Jeff Harrell, who of course wrote Rockney of Ages, he kind of feels the same way about Rockney, kind of treated more as an artifact, a relic. But this was seemingly confirmed by that ESPN Top 150 poll. A full two-thirds of the players selected by the experts played between the 1960s through the 1990s. So also, not for nothing, the film Canute Rockne All-American, which saw a young Ronald Reagan play Gipp, is now 80 years old. Whew. So let's unpack Gipp and keep his true essence going. So starting at the beginning, Gipp was born in Lauriam, Michigan, on the Keweenaw Peninsula on February 19th, 1895 for those of you who are like me and geography kind of (laughs) matters this is the upper peninsula michigan so in modern parlance george gipp was a youper he was the seventh of eight children born to matthew gipp kind of a straight-laced baptist preacher and his mother isabella as something of a foreshadowing of his later life he was easily the best athlete at calumet high school in nearby calumet michigan But he earned miserable grades and, as a result, struggled with athletic eligibility. In fact, I read that George Gipp did not earn a single varsity letter in high school because he struggled with eligibility so much. Now, it's of note, though, he wasn't a troublesome kid. At least that's what his family asserted. And he was very well-liked, but he had very few close friends. He was just kind of a loner. Perhaps reserved is a bit better of a word, but while he was individualistic and hard-headed. He wasn't rude. I guess when you think of him as a charming rogue, that kind of makes sense. He spent a lot of time in his own head and just never really had many profoundly deep relationships, including with his own family. So aside from being perhaps the very best athlete in the Upper Peninsula, Gip loved, and I mean loved, to play cards and billiards frankly he was a shark at both endeavors and while he had little patience for rules relationships and societal norms he had a voracious appetite for pool and poker and could play would play literally for over 24 straight hours on a number of occasions goodness so (laughs) you might be thinking at this point how did Gip end up at Notre Dame well, mostly happenstance and under circumstances you unequivocally won't see today. So he played on a uh, semi-pro baseball team that made fairly frequent trips to Elkhart, Indiana. So Gip at this time and really throughout his college career is about 6'2", 180, 185 pounds. He's also listed in some areas, uh, in some spots as six foot. Uh, But more commonly, a six-foot-two. And he was incredibly graceful on the diamond. Now, of course, he's going to become famous as a football player, but he was a great baseball player, which we'll touch on. And he was also blazing fast. He allegedly ran the 100-yard dash in 10.2 seconds. Folks, that is really fast. Uh, So his play there, though, attracted the eyes of the Notre Dame baseball coaching staff who offered the then 21-year-old GIP a full tuition scholarship to Notre Dame, which he accepted, and he actually followed a couple uh, acquaintances to the school. Now, when we think of, again, Notre Dame, South Bend, I should say, in Michigan, they're kind of a stone's throw apart. However, Laurium, Michigan, and South Bend are a hell of a long way apart. Nearly eight and a half hours by car in the present day, So, again, while Gip was a Michigan native, South Bend, Indiana probably did indeed represent a completely different world to him. So, anyways, all of this is significant for a couple of reasons. So, first, no, Gip did not go to South Bend to play football, but rather baseball. And second, he hadn't even graduated from high school. So, needless to say, eligibility rules in those days weren't nearly as stringent as they are now in a day and age where athletes can't take a bologna sandwich unless the NCAA accounts for it. That's a completely different conversation, but alas, Notre Dame in 1916 was neither an academic powerhouse nor an athletic juggernaut. And these are of course two self-standing reputations the Irish of today enjoy. So yes, when Gipp arrives in South Bend, it's to play football. And he wasn't or excuse me, to play baseball. Baseball, and he wasn't even a high school graduate. So, truthfully, knowing what we know about Gipp, I mean, I am surprised, I shocked even, that he would ever find himself within the rigid environment of a college academic setting. Rigidity and George Gipp simply do not get along. And if Matthew Gipp, his father, would have been the one pressing him to go to college, I'm of the opinion he probably would not have gone. But, however, it was his older brother, Alex, who pressured him to which George eventually actually relented. So, Gip got to campus and he was immediately bored with the academics. And perhaps the only thing that actually kept him on campus that first year was the fact that there was a pool table in the campus's student center. And Gip would spend hours in the student center just playing pool. And his fellow students would marvel that Gip always played by himself and would sink upwards to 80 consecutive shots, and not break his focus, or show any expression. is uh, again, something of a foreshadowing, it was like he was impervious to pressure, or impervious to the audience or the crowd that would gather around him. Okay, so it's in the fall of 1916, Gipps' first year on campus, that he was discovered by then assistant coach Knut Rockney, who he, while he was aimlessly wandering a practice field, uh, drop kicking footballs in his dress shoes uh, with someone who was standing on the other side of the football field. Uh, but something that Rockney noticed. the unidentified new student was kicking the ball farther, than anyone on the actual football team. And again, he was wearing dress shoes, not athletic shoes. So the alleged exchange that followed has kind of become legendary. "What's your name?" Rockney asked. "Gip. George Gip. I come from Laurian, Michigan. Played high school football?" Rockney pressed. "No, I don't particularly care for football. Baseball's my game," Gip responded. But Rockney was nothing if not relentless, and he implored Gipp to, quote, put on your football scrubs tomorrow. I think you'll make a football player, end quote. This is interesting again for a number of reasons. Gipp rarely listened to anyone, but he actually showed up at practice the next day, and he was made captain of the freshman football team in 1916. And in a game against Western Michigan, Gipp successfully connected on a 62-yard drop kick. 62-yard drop kick. Rockney was convinced, aside from just his kicking ability, his obvious speed, that he had a bona fide future star on his hand. Something that Jeff Harrell dug out, a, a quote from Rockney that I thought fit Gip well was, quote, Most freshmen regard the football coach as if he's a deity on duty for the season. This boy's manner to me was almost indifferent." In the spring of 1917, his Notre Dame baseball career was actually cut short. Now, allegedly, his manager had given him a bunt sign, which George didn't really care for. So rather than squaring up to bunt, he just decided to take a hack at the next pitch. It was a big hack. George was also strong amongst his other physical abilities, and he sent the pitch whistling over the fence for a home run. Now, again, this is in an era of baseball where there weren't a lot of home runs hit over the fence. This is before Babe Ruth really popularized the home run starting in about 1920, 1921. So despite the dinger and scoring a run, his coach didn't really like to be shown up like most coaches, and he suspended Gip for a few games. Gip kind of does the classic, eh, you can't suspend me, I quit. And alas, his baseball career on campus was over. Yeah, he was just going to play football, at least for the time being. So in 1917, Gip suited up for the varsity football team under then head coach Jesse Harper. Gip rushed for 244 yards on 63 carries that first year on varsity, which his season was cut short due to a broken leg. While the injury initially allowed Gip to miss induction in the armed services, America had just entered World War I. Gip biographer James Cavanaugh greatly hints that Gip dodged the draft. But however, when I think of draft dodgers, I think of people who might have fled to Canada or, I don't know, found an underground bunker to hide in. But Gip really didn't hide. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He skipped the train, but he continued to suit up for a semi-pro baseball team the entire summer. Everybody knew he would missed the train, and no one really said anything. I guess they didn't want to lose their center fielder. Uh, and then as a quick aside, Gip was a sensational baseball player, as I mentioned earlier. But something that is maybe not as well known that the Chicago White Sox would eventually make him an offer to join their organization in 1920. So while he was, of course, a famous football player, it is absolutely in the realm of possibility that he was an even better baseball player. And another little bit that's a little bit lesser known uh, is that Gipp was also the starting center for the Notre Dame basketball team, uh, averaging three points per game over his four-game stint course three points per game you know but the games were notoriously low scoring at this time and i think gip just kind of quit the team as well so anyway the following season 1918 the spanish flu pandemic cut the regular season from nine games down to six games sounds like ohio state doesn't it anyways that's also a different conversation but this is where Gip starts to break out under now head coach Knut Rockney. In the abbreviated season, Gip rushed for 541 yards and threw for 293 yards, scoring six touchdowns and adding seven extra points. So again, this is 1918. Okay, so we got the athlete, we got the player Gip. He's really starting to really forge his way. He's Certainly a a star in some circles. He's not quite a national star yet. That will come. But let's go back to the enigmatic GIP. So to say he failed or received poor marks in his classes for nearly all of his classes would actually be charitable. He did so poorly his first two years at Notre Dame that he didn't receive any grades. Period. He spent nearly all of his time downtown South Bend becoming a de facto de facto local celebrity. Uh, You know, he opted to not stay in the residence halls or the dorm, uh, the dorm rooms, if you will, but rather the plush, opulent Oliver hotel. Again, where he spent nearly all of his waking hours when he wasn't playing sports at Hully and Mike's, a pool hall, cigar room, and a saloon downtown. It is reputed that he made thousands upon thousands of dollars at the pool and card table. And often, (laughs) yet another modern day NCAA no-no, he bet on Notre Dame games, almost always. And he always bet on them to win. Probably couldn't get away with that now. So 1919 was a watershed year in a sense for Notre Dame football. Now under second year head coach, Rockne, he absolutely unleashed Gipp and Notre Dame registered a 9-0 record and claimed a national title. Now get a load of this. Gip actually scored more points himself than all of Notre Dame's opponents that year combined. So that's technically his junior year. Alright, so now, yes, let's go, let's go on to that 1920 season. That uh, one that was just pure magic. Gip's senior year. And it was the one that made him nationally famous and cemented his legend in college football lore. I would be remiss not to mention that it didn't start so hot for him. <laughs> Remember when I mentioned here a couple minutes ago that he was so awful in his academics that he didn't receive any grades? Well, in fact, that might have been an open secret in, college of the, in the college football world. In 1918, the Nebraska head coach accosted Gipp after he played a pivotal role in Notre Dame defeating his Cornhuskers and asked him what classes he was taking at Notre Dame. Gipp, rather sardonically, through laughter, replied he was taking plumbing. Plumbing. So, again, while, uh, you know, he he just was not a very good student, but you know, honestly, he might have been a good student, but it becomes clear that he never went to class. And so he was actually expelled from Notre Dame before the 1920 season. And you know what? Gip really didn't seem to mind much. And his coach, Knut Rockne, was absolutely furious, both at the administration and the university uh, for seemingly allowing, again, the carefree star to just walk. Uh, Rockney's ears may have been steaming when he found out that uh, schools such as Michigan and Army would only too happily allow Gip to transfer in and suit up for their teams. So Gip took action, and he went door-to-door to every football booster, small business, or donor in the South Bend area that again supported the school to sign a petition Reinstate GIP or lose our support, it simply stated. And Notre Dame President Father James A. Burns relented and allowed GIP to return to school. So remember, a bit more of a thorough breakdown is on the Facebook page of the 1920 season, but please let me share some highlights because some of them are absolutely absurd. Okay, so October 30th, this is again 1920. Notre Dame is squaring off against the vaunted Army squad. Words cannot, ex- I don't want to understate just how good Army was at this time. I think most people who are familiar with college football know that it was around this time Army was often a juggernaut. So, Notre Dame, this is the fifth game of the year for them. And they are 4-0 and zero at this point. And it was all on the line when Army took a 17-14 lead in the locker room at halftime. Rockney was absolutely, once again, furious. And I know this is a family-friendly show, but let's just say he was extremely pissed. Uh, and he is absolutely tearing into his boys. And after seeing his star back, George Gipp, leaned against the wall, casually smoking a cigarette, he resets his crosshairs. And you, Gipp, Rockney shouted, I suppose you don't have any interest in this game, do you? To which Gip replied, and he may have been the only dude in Notre Dame history who could get away with this. And he said, look, Rock, I've got 400 bucks on this game. I'm not about to blow it. Even Rockney had to crack a smile, but that really put the team at ease. And Gip spurred the team to a 27-17 victory. Rushing for 150 yards, passing for 123, and returning kicks for another 112 yards, it is after this game that all of a sudden Gip became a viable All-American first teamer. So fast forward just a couple weeks, November 13th, the Irish are now 6-0 and are squaring off against rival Indiana. And Gip actually goes down in the second quarter with a dislocated shoulder. Now, I have a brother who have, has had this injury in the past, and if you have had it, you know it hurts badly. So, in the fourth quarter, the gipless Notre Dame squad is down 10-0, but they do drive down to the Indiana one-yard line. Now, after the first two attempts are stuffed, Rockney yells down the bench to his injured star. George, can you put the ball in the end zone? To which Gip replied, I'll try, Rock. Gip, who could hardly move his arm without searing pain, is also stuffed on third down. The game is now on the line. It is fourth down. Gip once again takes the handoff and puts his head down to plunge in the end zone for a touchdown. His head was down, of course, bracing for impact, and of course he had the bum shoulder, but his head was down and he didn't see the goalpost which of course at this time the goal post used to sit on the goal line and he smacked right into it and at that point broke his collarbone. So miraculously, somehow, with a separated shoulder and a broken collarbone, he drop kicked the extra point. And then he doubled down and he stayed in the game and led Notre Dame to yet another touchdown drive and an ultimate 13-10 victory over Indiana and a 7-0 record. Okay, my goodness, in addition to his shoulder and collarbone, it was after the Indiana game that he began to lament to his pal Hunk Anderson about this sore throat he was having. Uh, and, it, you know, and I hate to sound morose and I hate to be a downer, but at this point, who could possibly have known that he would be dead in almost exactly a month. Again, I don't bring this up to be a downer, but man, this is an important part of the context of this story. So, Gipps' health actually ends up getting worse by the day, and Notre Dame's penultimate game of the season was against Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois, on November 20th. And again, after the Army game, Gipp's exploits are being covered weekly, coast to coast. And the Chicago-area Notre Dame Alumni Club, completely smitten with their star, sponsored George Gipp Day for the game. So before the game, Gipp reputedly had a fever of 102 degrees. And Rockne had no intention of playing him. So Gipp sat on the bench with a heavy parka on, his head kind of down and unfortunately for him the weather was cold and it was rainy and the sickly gip was getting absolutely pelted with the precipitation all afternoon fever and all as well as his other physical maladies and you know, at this time, Northwestern isn't very good. So in the third quarter, Notre Dame is actually leading 21 to seven, but there's a huge crowd there about 20,000 people. And of course, unknowing that Gip was in all likelihood dying on the bench, they began chanting for him. We want Gip. We want Gip. So Gip again, typically impervious to outside pressure and oblivious to crowds, stood up, shook off his parka, and walked over to his coach. Knowing that this was probably the last game he would ever play, he asked, Coach Rockney said, put me in rock, we can't disappoint them. So despite the bum shoulder, collarbone, and debilitating sickness, Kip threw a touchdown on his first pass. On the next possession, he threw another one, a 55-yard play that reportedly traveled over 40 yards in the air. I still have no clue how, but that day, Gip completed five of his six passes for 129 yards and two touchdowns. Three days later, Gip was in the hospital. He would never leave. So a few days before his death, Gip was informed that he had been named to the aforementioned Walter Camp List. Though his spirits were in fact lifted, he gave a typical reserved Gip response to the news. Simply saying, that's Jake, he said, which was parlance in the day for, oh, that's good, or that's fine. On December 13th, his coach, mentor, advocate, and friend Knut Rockney visited his bedside at the St. Joseph Hospital. Gip had lost 40 pounds during the hospitalization and, to Rockney, anyways, was nearly unrecognizable. Rockney put his head on Gip's forehead and bid him one final goodbye. According to Rock, Gip used much of his remaining strength to implore him to deliver a stirring message to the Notre Dame football boys when the time was right. You may know it, but it goes like this. I've got to go, Rock. It's all right. I'm not afraid. Sometime, Rock, when the team is up against it, when things are wrong and the brakes are beating the boys, ask them to go in there with all they've got. And win just one for the Gipper. I don't know where I'll be then, Rock. But I'll know about it. And I'll be happy. Hours later, in the early morning of December 14th, 1920, 3.27 a.m. to be exact, George Gipp died. Rockney delivered the deathbed message in 1928, in a stirring halftime speech while his team was up against, again, Army. The scene was forever immortalized in the aforementioned 1940 film, Canute Rockney, All-American. You are probably also aware of this scene, but it went something like this. Quote, Well, boys, I haven't a thing to say. Played a great game, all of you great game. I guess we just can't expect to win them all. I'm going to tell you something I've kept to myself for years. None of you ever knew George Gipp. It was long before your time, but you know what a tradition he is at Notre Dame. And the last thing he says to me, rock, he said, sometime when the team is up against it, And the brakes are beating the boys. Tell them to go out there with all they got and win just one for the Gipper. And with that, of course, the the team gets all hyped up and they, they say, well, what are we waiting for? And they leave the locker room and they go out and they defeat the heavily favored Army squad. So I suppose when it's all said and done, remember Gip the legend. It is truly a rich piece of college football lore but man don't forget Gip as the truly sensational player cross-referenced with that ever so interesting personality do I know where he ranks in the annals of college football history no I do not but man I know where he ranks in my heart and I know that my kids will know this story. And the Gip will live on forever. And that was George Gip, 100 years later. I'd like to thank everyone for your support of Onward to Victory. Again, in particular, those Consensus All-Americans, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. If you'd like to support the show from a monetary standpoint, again, please visit paypal.me onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash Podcast. Don't forget to jump over to the Facebook page and like and follow. That is where most show updates as well as show features are funneled through. So if you're not on Facebook, I understand. But if you are, I implore you, go over and give the show page a like got a busy weekend coming up here (laughs) and I try not to date episodes too much as you all are aware but however we've got a big one Notre Dame joined the ACC this year and we find ourselves in the ACC championship game in a rematch of the against Clemson so a classic number two versus number three and we'll see how it goes um yeah, I, I won't talk too much about that, but it will. I will talk about it in a future episode. But best of luck to the boys this weekend. What's coming down the pike? Well, if you've been around the show for a while, you might remember the uh, Notre Dame and the Civil War. Uh, it was a three-part mini series that I did. Uh, it was about this time last year. It was kind of over the holidays into maybe even into January, February, I suppose. Anyways, I am very excited to add to that. I have. Uh, I'm a bit of a Civil War buff as I was, uh, again, I wasn't trying to hide that uh, in those episodes, but I have gathered enough information to come up with another compelling installment. So we will have Notre Dame in the Civil War Part 4, and very, very much looking forward to um, the uh, next few episodes. They're going to be really fun and really interesting to you, so... Uh, Again, stay tuned. If you haven't liked or subscribed to the show, please do so whatever platform that you listen from. So don't forget to like and subscribe. If you're on Apple, if you have an iPhone, pardon me, just click that purple podcast icon and give the show five stars. Give it a like, man. I really, really appreciate it. I just want to wish everybody, you and your family, a very warm, peaceful, and most importantly, healthy holiday season. So Uh, A Merry Christmas to you all. Or if any of you celebrate Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, uh, just have a happy holiday season and a happy new year. And I will check in with uh, all of you here very, very soon. So I suppose I will sign off. But however, I want to give a quick uh, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who again, if you haven't heard his song, it's called Knut Rockney, and it's the song that leads the show in. That's our theme song. Uh, That's his. So go, go to Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, youtube give it a spin he's got a lot of other music too man go support him uh we always appreciate the fact that he allowed uh, us to use the, the song for our theme song so all right i will sign off but as always in kindness my name is alex painter and go irish